Pearson is very pleased to sponsor this series of JogPod. Pearson provide a blend of content, curricula, assessment and training to make the teaching and learning of geography at GCSE and A-level more engaging and effective. For more information about our geography qualifications, please visit us at qualls.pearson.com forward slash geography or follow us on Twitter at edxl underscore jog. Hello there and welcome to JogPod. Today it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Dr Harriet Ridley, who's a paleoclimatologist and production coordinator for Time for Geography. Harriet, you're also a rock climber, uh, tackling routes that would scare the pants off most people. I've, I've looked at some of your, <laughs> some of your articles, and, but they also take you to some of the world's most amazing geological and geographical areas. What a fantastic hobby to add to being a, a paleoclimatologist. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, no worries. Um, paleoclimatology then. Uh, for A-level students, it's the study of previous climates. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about how we gather evidence for climate change, because A-level students will study about this. They'll look at climate change from the beginning of the quaternary. And most of them, I think, will be aware that, I suppose, after the, beyond the past 130 years or so, observational and instrumental data is a bit unreliable. I was having a look at a Samuel Pepys diary and it's interesting and you can get bits out of it, but it's not something that a scientist would go, hell yeah, just a minute, this is pretty accurate. <laughs> so <laughs> climate scientists like you use proxies to reconstruct conditions at a given point. And I didn't, and I remember when I did this at A-level, I didn't understand it to start with. So what exactly are proxy data? So, um, simply put, proxy data are what we use to stand in when we don't have observational measurements of climate. So, like you said there, John, um, we only have been keeping records of the climate for about 130, 150 years. Um, beyond that, the records are sparse. Like you say, it's someone writing in their diary that it rained a lot today, and that's not of use to climate scientists. Um, but we do need to know what has been going on with the climate in the past. That's absolutely key to us understanding what the climate's doing now and what it might do in the future. Um, and so we need to find another way of, find, of um, looking at what the climate was doing um, beyond our, our short instrumental record. Um, fortunately for us, the earth has been doing its own record keeping for hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years in naturally occurring climate archives. Things like tree rings, ice cores, sediment cores, corals, um, all of these things record elements of the climate as they grow or as they're formed. And this is where our proxy data comes from. This is where we gather data that is gonna fill in for um, where the periods of time where we don't have observations, which is most of the Earth's history. Um, so for example, things like a tree ring is a great example. It's a very sort of simple example to look at. We cut down a tree and we can see rings. We can 
count those rings because generally there is a, a ring for every year the tree has been growing. And as it's been growing, it's been recording elements of the climate. So uh, if the tree ring is thicker, then it generally means that the climate was warmer um, and a bit wetter, so the tree could grow lots. Whereas if the tree ring is very thin, that would imply that it was drier and colder. So if we see lots of years where there are uh, thin layers, then that would mean that it was, well, that would imply that there was a period of drought. Um, and this is the proxy data. This is what we're looking for. Um, and paleoclimatologists, we gather proxy data from lots of different archives all over the world, ice cores, corals, sediment cores, tree rings. And this gives us a really good picture of what the climate has been doing in the past. It's always interesting to read people's research. And when I'm doing this sort of thing, I generally look up and see what people have researched. So I did look at yours and yours has largely been in the Caribbean and Central America. So not for you tottering about into Derbyshire and, and going down some murky, horrible, wet hole. You've been <laughs> delving into deep tropical caves to investigate past climate change. And, and then what, I, I got this, that you've been examining through looking at stalagmites, which was really interesting. Yeah. Stalagmites is a proxy record. So I, I thought I should ask you first, just for those people who don't get the difference between the G and the sea and the ceiling and the ground and the mite and the tight. What is a stalagmite? How did they grow? And the last bit is how on earth can they tell you about past climate? Yeah, so um, stalagmites are brilliant proxy archives. Um, for those people who don't know, because it is a bit confusing and not everyone has been in a cave, um, but stalagmites are the beautiful candlesticks and formations that you you find inside limestone caves. Um, I'm sure lots of people have seen pictures of um, big caverns that have got these these mounds, these drippy candlesticks sticking up from the ground and they are stalagmites. Um, not to be confused with stalactites, which are the little spires, the little ice, like rock icicles that hang down from the ceiling. Um, that's the stalactites. And the way that I was told to remember that is to think that stalactites need to hold on tight to the ceiling. Stalagmites are on the ground. And stalagmites are what, what we're interested in primarily as um, paleospeleologists, which is the, the term that, uh, that covers people who study past climate from stalagmites. Um, and stalagmites, as they grow or they form when water uh, from rainfall or groundwater um, infiltrates the soil, infiltrates the bedrock above the cave. And when it's in that bedrock, it dissolves some of the minerals in that rock, it dissolves some of the limestone. And then when it reaches the cave, each drip of water drops onto the floor and deposits some of those minerals that it's dissolved. Um, and so these minerals with each drip of water build up in layers. And that's how a stalagmite forms. Um, but what's really cool is that each drop of water contains information about the climate. And so each drop of water that then lands on the stalagmite and grows it a little bit more is contains climate information that then we can take away and analyze 
to look to understand what the climate was doing. So that's how stalactites can tell us about climate. And they can tell us all kinds of things. They can tell us what the temperature was doing. They can tell us about rainfall. They can tell us, some of them can tell us whether a hurricane has passed by or um, whether there were, what the vegetation was doing above the cave, things like that. It just depends on what stalagmite you use, where in the world it is, um, because they're all very, very unique. But they are these incredible archives of proxy data um, that are very, very powerful for understanding past climate. Now, I've bumbled about some caves in Derbyshire before. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't, no. When you did your, your research, you ended up going off to Central America and Belize. So yeah. how come you got such a, I'm going to call it a jolly bit. How come you <laughs> such a wonderful place? I know, I was, I have to say, John, I think I had one of the coolest PhDs going. Um, and I was, I, I really did. And I was very, very lucky um, because it was so heavily fieldwork based. I got to go, like you say, to the Caribbean. I went to the Turks and Caicos Islands um, and looked at some stalagmites there. But my main field site was in southern Belize. Um, and it was a cave in the jungle. So we had to, we had to, uh, you know, to even get to Belize, we had to take a number of planes and then we had to take a small plane down to southern Belize. And then we had to drive for an hour to a, a really remote Mopan Mayan village. And from there we we trekked into the jungle for or into the tropical forest for um, an hour, an hour and a half, something like that. And then we got to this cave um, that is called Yokbalum Cave, which means Jaguar Paw Cave, because at the entrance there was this really cool flowstone which is formed in the same way that stalagmites and stalactites are so it's a, a cave deposit and it was just shaped like a giant jaguar paw um, and you sort of went underneath it and crawled through a tunnel and then the cave just opened up and there were um, thousands thousands of stalagmites um, and flowstones and cave formations it was just beautiful um, so I was uh, yeah I was so so lucky to work there. What I found fascinating was that you were able to record air pollution. I mean, we talk about climate change, but you're also able to record air pollution. Most of us, when asked about climate change, we think about uh, climate change, perhaps the old term global warming and the rising greenhouse gases, but they're not the only pollutants. So we've got the potential to disrupt the climate and, and you found other pollutants or evidence of in that record. Yeah, so, so from this cave in Belize, um, I created a, a, a 450, nearly 500 year climate record that was like really highly detailed climate record of what rainfall has been doing. And um, I did this by, by, like I was saying before, analyzing all the little layers in the stalagmite, um, analyzing them using really quite high tech um, laboratory equipment to look at the chemistry of uh, each of those layers. And that then told us about what rainfall was doing above the cave. And, um, and like you say, um, what we found was that um, there was evident, we found evidence that aerosols um, from burning fossil fuels um, and so human pollution in the Northern hemisphere was actually having an effect on the, the rainfall patterns down in Belize. Um, 
And like you say, that's because when when we burn fossil fuels, we're not just releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're we're releasing um, lots of lots of other nasty things as well. Um, we're releasing soot and, and black carbon, and we're releasing these things called aerosols. Mainly, they're things like sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide, which go into the atmosphere and actually then they form aerosols. These um, these pollutants can have an impact um, on the climate and can affect uh, rainfall patterns elsewhere in the world. Now, you've written an article on that, haven't you, in the conversation, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think we could put a link into that because mm-hmm. it's for, for like me, a bear of small brain. Some of this academic writing is <laughs> difficult to get into. But, uh, it is. It is. You, t- you talk about how this affected the position of the intertropical convergence zone. Now, mm. it, it would be worth, I think, just to briefly you reminding us what that is. But A-level students will talk about the movement of the ITCZ. Mm-hmm. So what is it and how did that affect its movement? So... The Intertropical Convergence Zone is a uh, a band of low pressure and heavy rainfall that's roughly around the equator. It actually follows the thermal equator, which is where the the, the part of the planet that receives the most solar insulation. And that actually changes. I mean, if you think about it, it's quite logical that it changes with our seasons. So when the Northern Hemisphere is in summer, we are receiving slightly more solar insulation. And so the Northern Hemisphere is drawn toward, sorry, the intertropical convergence zone is drawn towards the Northern Hemisphere. And then when it's summer in the Southern Hemisphere, then the intertropical convergence zone is drawn further south. So it is always roughly around the equator. It moves between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Um, But it is, it's, the intertropical convergence zone is really important for driving global circulation, global weather patterns and, um, and climate. And like I said, uh, the aerosols that we're producing, um, what they do um, is reflect incoming solar radiation back out to space. And so relatively, they cool the climate a little bit. And this imbalance of heat or this change of of um of heat in the northern hemisphere because we're pumping out all these aerosols has an impact on the position of the intertropical convergence zone um it will it will push it or keep it further to the south um because relatively the northern hemisphere has been cooled by these aerosols and that was what we found in our records um it had been proposed before in modeling studies and and um, other people's records they put this forward um and ours showed exactly the same thing it showed that um since the industrial revolution since we've started pumping out aerosols into the atmosphere we're actually we actually saw a slight a drying at, in belize belize is getting drier um and this is because the intertropical convergence zone isn't moving as far north um during the wet season and the area is therefore receiving less rain. And if you think about it, that actually has huge implications for not just Belize, but anywhere in the tropics and all the people that live in the, uh, in the tropics and rely on rainfall for agriculture and, and water supplies. This whole thing about creating new knowledge in science, I think is fascinating. And it's something that, it, it, it annoys me sometimes that, that particularly newspapers, don't pick up on this. They pick up on one bit. The scientists say this, 
But actually, yeah. we're developing new ideas all the time. So you had modeling there and you went out and then tested something in the field that confirmed the model. But even then, uh, I suppose you're feeling a little bit, uh, well, let's find some other evidence as well, which you absolutely. did, didn't you? Absolutely. You went yeah, we did. So um, like you say, in science, you, you can't just look at one thing um, or and say, oh, well, this is it. We found it once. Here's This is what it is. We can say, oh, that we think this is what it is. But you need to go out and find more evidence. You need to find... Um, you know, you need to look to see what other researchers have done and see if it supports it. And, and together we're, you know, geographers and earth scientists, we're, we're building up all the time this body of knowledge that should be built upon, should be challenged. Um, and that's what takes us forward in geography. Every study is just contributing a bit more to the, this, uh, this community knowledge this, um, about our planet. Um, but like you say, we found our record, we looked at it and we thought, well, we think this is what's going on. Um, modelers have said that this is this is happening and, um, and this is what our record, our paleoclimate proxy record is showing us. Um, but perhaps there's a natural analogy that we can we can find. Perhaps this has happened naturally in um, in the past. And as many uh, GCC and A-level students will know, uh, volcanic activity is a natural driver of climate change um, because volcanoes when they erupt big volcanic eruptions they they throw huge amounts of dust and gas into the atmosphere and these are aerosols and these do the same thing as our pollution they um, reflect some of that incoming solar radiation back out to space and cause local cooling and so volcanoes can actually upset the climate in a very similar way to our um our aerosol pollutants from, from burning fossil fuels. And so we looked back in our, in our records, and actually I did it for the last 2000 years, and we found that after big Northern Hemisphere volcanic eruptions, we saw for a year or two after that, drier conditions at our site in Belize. So this suggests um, that that indeed the sort of the if, if there's enough aerosols in the atmosphere that can upset the circulation uh, the circulation patterns and the thermal differences between the hemispheres and cause the intertropical convergence zone to be pushed a little bit further to the south meaning that our field site didn't receive quite as much rainfall um and was a bit drier and again this can this uh this is great because it's evidence of natural climate change but it also shows that um that the human activity is is having a big impact on the climate and not like you say not just how we thought it was with with warming there's there's other things going on that mean that um the impacts of climate change are not the same everywhere in the world i remember doing some work a while ago on um, on volcanoes and the impact on artists which was really fascinating because they looked the at turner and oh yeah turner's skies yes yeah, all the red skies and the munch the screen it's yes, also another yeah. one where it was influenced uh -huh. by a different volcano. Now, if I could remember both, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be really clever and tell you which of the two they were, but I, I can't remember. But, but I'd love to be able to tell you too, but I'd, I'd be guessing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd remember both there. This is, this is amazing stuff because when an A-level student says, what on earth can I do with geography? Well, here's oh, yeah. some really big new knowledge being created because, of, yeah. because we're still uncertain.
and we still need to push forward. We still need to make more discoveries. There are many more discoveries still need to be made that A-level students going to university could be part of. Absolutely. There is, there's so much geography and I mean, uh, Rob and I, my, my colleague at Time for Geography, we often talk about this. We, we talk about how geography is this big umbrella subject um, that, that covers um, really it's, it's for schools. It's the gateway subject to then study geology and earth science and some of these um, slightly, I suppose, more niche subjects. But I think they're all covered by, by geography. And then, of course, within geography as well, you've got elements of sociology and urban geography and, and human geography. It's, it's really, really vast. Um, and so by studying geography at school, the scope um, that you then have to make big differences to the, the, our future and to our planet and um, us as a global community or a lo local communities is huge. It's really, it's a really exciting subject for, for students to be, to be taking on. Um, and yeah, there's definitely so much that they can do with it that is very cool. And if crawling through dirty, um, spider-ridden tropical caves isn't your bag, then there's other things that you can do with geography. You could go to the Antarctic and study ice cores. You could be studying cities. You could be studying sustainable tourism. Um, there's, there's just so many things that, that you can do with it. There's something, you know, something for everyone, perhaps. Oh, yes, that's absolutely amazing. I want to talk to you about time for geography later because it's that, that's just amazing too. I think what you've done there, your team, more than 40 geographers is fantastic. But I just want to follow this a little bit because I know yeah, you've sure. been involved in, in a, a couple of papers where you were a, you collaborated with, with a huge number of other academics. And there were, yeah. there were two things. One that I thought was fascinating about how you looked at the possible impact of climate change on on past civilizations, and you mentioned it earlier, you talked about the Mayan civilization mm -hmm. and the potential impact of climate change, which might have been a result of something that happened in the Northern Hemisphere, impacting mm -hmm. upon them. So I wonder if you could, because that, what a link that is now, from a, yeah. a stalactite, stalagmite, sorry, yeah, to, that's to the, the one, Mayan civilization. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oops. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, yeah, so again, uh, I was very, very fortunate um, during my PhD research that I got to work with uh, a, uh, a really big group of uh, researchers. I, I worked with archaeologists and geologists, uh, scientists, climate scientists, um, ethnographers, um, all these people who were, who were working on one big project in Belize that linked archaeology and ancient culture and modern traditions with climate and geology um, and, and past climate change. And one of the things that the group worked on was looking at what had caused the, um, the fall of the ancient Maya. Um, the, the Maya is, when we talk about the Maya, we're talking about a, a number of different groups of people that all lived in um, Central America. And they were one of the most advanced civilizations in the Americas, um, in sort of like pre-Columbus, in the pre-Columbus era. And um, they, you know, the, the Mayans had uh, cities, they had... Um, they had, they were a very advanced civilization. They had calendars and astronomy and uh, um, their cities had government buildings and plazas and they had uh, social structures um, and very advanced agriculture for the time. And then 
for, for reasons that for a long time were de very strongly debated and, and still are being investigated, um, the civilization just sort of disappeared in areas of Belize and, and Mexico, um, like, like where I worked. And um, for a long time, archaeologists just, they just didn't know why. They, they had various theories. Was it disease? Was it um, warfare? Things like that. Um, and climate was always something that people thought, oh, well, there you go. Maybe it was a drought. Maybe it was a drought that caused famine and, and, and water scarcity. And the group that I worked with, um, we all sort of helped to produce a, a climate record that showed that, the, that in, in that area where um, there were loads of Mayan ruins, we, um, there, there was um, a period of drought um, that put pressure on those societies and led to sort of warfare and, and you know, different, different urban centers fighting over resources or, or certainly a degree of social unrest. And they, they linked that quite conclusively with the, the fall of the, of the Mayan, the big Mayan cities in that area, which is, um, yeah, it was just so cool to work on because, like, you know, as a, someone that did a geography undergrad, I never thought I'd be working with archaeologists and uh, with, you know, people who were specialists in Mayan culture and traditions and things like that. So it was, it was just absolutely brilliant. It just shows how, how interdisciplinary research can be and, and, and what, you know, what doors that opens and, and how you get to meet different researchers and learn new things um, that maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect. And water security isn't a new issue at all. It's been occurring for more than a thousand years. People worrying about where their water's going to come from. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about Time for Geography because you mentioned it. And those videos are absolutely <laughs> amazing because it's a fascinating academic in a real landscape, bringing it into the classroom, whether it's a cityscape or a glaciated landscape or a coastal environment. And they're, they're just gold dust. If I was teaching now, they'd be absolutely mm. my go-to. So how did it come about to start with? Because when we started at the GA, it, we were thinking, goodness me, we need a production. We need so much. And you pulled that together and it's absolutely fantastic. So what's the story? How did it start? So Time for Geography um, started as a little side project um, with my colleague Rob, uh, Rob Parker, and his brother Tim. Rob is a uh, geography academic. Uh, we actually met Rob and I when we were at Durham doing our PhDs um, and we were, we were friends up there. Um, and then Rob was working as a lecturer at Cardiff and his brother is a geography teacher and as a side project they just started up Time for Geography that was um, in the early days, it was sort of just, it was maybe thinking more about written resources, helping students with exam questions and things like that. And I did a little bit of work for them at that time, just doing some voiceover and things like that. And then I was off, I went off to the States and did some other work. Um, and Time for Geography for Rob and Tim really took off. And um, they started making these videos, just, just two of them. They'd go out and they'd talk about rivers and they'd talk about um, coastal processes. And um, just more and more people started using the website and started using those resources. And um, when I came back from the US, I got a phone call from Rob and he, he just said, hey, I've, I've started, you know, Time for Geography's really, really taken off and I could do with another person being on board. Um, he, he 
uh, stopped. He, he left Cardiff. Um, he's still an, he has an honorary position there, but he, he's not an active academic there anymore. He works full time with design photography. And um, and he said, you know, he said he'd love to have me on board. And so we, we got together. And um, and since then, the project's just grown so much. Um, we continuously get great feedback from teachers and students and academics who were involved um and it's it's really driven for us by it's driven because we love geography and earth science and we think it's such a cool subject and we think it's an important subject and we know that academics and teachers feel the same way um, and we really wanted to make sure that that was conveyed in the most inspirational and exciting way to students because they are, we need them. We need them to be excited about geography. We need them to be enthused about the world and curious about it and motivated to learn about it and to help it um, for our future. And we, um, so it's, it's really driven by you know, us, us loving geography and then really wanting to support students and teachers in you know um following geography and finding careers that they love in geography and essentially helping to make big decisions that will that will impact our future as a you know as a planet and as a race and everything yeah it's it's been a, it's been a wonderful it's been wonderful working for time for geography and i've learned lots and lots of new skills that are not not academic they're you know in video editing and scripting and and video production which again is something I never something I thought that that geography would lead me to um but here we are they're just such a great resource for any teacher who hasn't found them yet but they must have been living in a black hole if they've missed time for this. <laughs> uh, because they're so good lastly I'd like to ask you this is a, this is a bit of a tangent, I suppose now, but I can't I can't let you go without asking about your climbing. Um, <laughs> your grade of climbing just it just puts my thrashing around on stanage and and scrambling up the buckle and stuff like that into the shade. I, it's just breathtaking looking at the photographs, never mind being stood there. So, what got you into rock climbing in the first place? Um, first of all, I wouldn't underestimate thrashing around at Stanage. That's, um, that Stanage can be very, very difficult. Um, but I was very fortunate. I, my dad took me climbing when I was very young. I think we've got a photo somewhere of me, maybe seven years old, on the Idwell Slabs in North Wales. Um, and then I sort of start, got into climbing when I was a bit older um, and just have always loved the outdoors doors and I've always loved the physicality of climbing um, and how adventurous it is. I will say I think I'm I'm very very privileged that I had access to the outdoors through my father and then when I was um, a bit older I was able to take time to go into the outdoors to go climbing um, and again this is something that geography can really give students because it does give them access to the outdoors um so field studies and outdoor education um they kind of go hand in hand in hand geography field studies and, and outdoor education and i think that's such a valuable um such a valuable avenue of teaching that really cannot be lost because it, it does 
provide lots and lots of students access to the outdoors that they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, and a whole new sort of, you know, side to learning about geography. And so it's really, really important. That's a little bit of an aside, but I do think that's, that's and such I, No, I, I think that's really important because there's, there's, uh, there's work going on at the moment to, to try and get the government to support the, these places, otherwise they will shut. Absolutely. That is, that's almost why I bring it up, because they are, we have to save our outdoor education centres. And that includes, it includes um, outdoor education centres that just take kids out kayaking and rock climbing and give, give all students access to the outdoors, which is so important for um, their learning and their mental health and, you know, everything that they just giving it's so important to be in nature and to be challenging yourself in nature like that. It's just lovely. But then also it's, it's field study centers. It's, it's places where um, students will go on residential geography trips. They need to be um, supported as well. So yeah, I, I, I just, I just couldn't, couldn't bypass the opportunity to, to mention that because I do think it's really, really important um, for geography and for students that they have access to that. Centres have lost that. Authorities have lost their centres quite a lot. I'm going to sound like an old fossil here, but um, I worked in Rotherham and we had a centre at Croton in the Peak District. And that went, ooh, I bet it's 25 years ago when the authority decided that they couldn't fund those. And they're being lost through many local authorities. And as schools become academy chains, they don't provide those sorts of centres. So they do become mm-hmm. more privatised, which is fine. Yeah. But then you get to the stage where we're at now, where if schools can't go to them, mm-hmm. um, then they can't make a living. And even the big centres are struggling because you, you can't run something like that without a regular number of students coming and visiting. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. I, I still get comments from my XA-level students about the field trips. We used to go to Aaron. Because from a coal mining mm-hmm. area in, in in the Rotherham area, to go to somewhere mm-hmm. like Aaron was about as breathtaking yeah. as, as we could afford. But it, it's just an amazing experience. So you're right. It's uh, it's something that we've got to continue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's, yeah, it's worth fighting for, for all students to be able to access that. Because it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I for one, I think it's, I think it's incredible. So, where have you been with your climbing? Because I, um, I read that thing about Madagascar, which is just, it's mm, just incredible. But you, you've been all over the place. Yeah, I mean, there's still, still plenty of places to go. But um, yeah, I've been again very lucky. I've, I have climbed in Europe and Australia. Uh, I lived in the US, so I climbed over there a lot. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, Madagascar, that was, um, that was a real expedition. And that was, uh, that was just over two years ago now. Um, um, Madagascar was absolutely, from a geographical point of view, uh, or from a geography studies point of view, it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful country. Um, obviously, there's the, the wildlife that everyone is, that everyone knows about lemurs and things like that, which is wonderful. But also from a, um, a more human geography point of view there's so much to be learned from um from madagascar um obviously it's a very it's a very poor nation it's um i think the 10th poorest nation in the world um so there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh really interesting stuff there in terms of legacies of colonialism and the impacts of tourism um international development um 
it's so yeah it was a very very humbling place to visit um but very very interesting and really really beautiful wonderful incredible climbing um and yeah i i i was incredibly fortunate to to have visited somewhere somewhere like that as i was looking at that i something triggered in my mind and i know i've watched a video i don't know if it's on youtube but i've gone searching for it and it was <laughs> a, it was a geology teacher who was also looking at getting his students to rock climb. Yep. And they were halfway up this face, a relatively easy one, of course, but they were looking at dip and strike. And what a brilliant way of, of combining a whole host of different things. So you're excited by your rock climbing, or it's frightening to me, if it's me. And, um, but you're still looking at the geology and yeah. why the shapes are the shapes they are. It was just, yeah. I, but I can't find it. Somebody will listen to this now and say, I know where it is, I hope, and, and let us know. Yeah. There's an idea for time for geography, which um, comes for me for free. Uh, yeah, well, thank you, John. Um, it is something, <laughs> Rob and I have spoken about this and we've said how cool would it be, you know, to be rock climbing or to be kayaking or to be doing, you know, something that we love because Rob's a very, very um, passionate kayaker. He's also a climber. Um, and we've talked about about all those kinds of things, trying to trying to involve them in time photography videos. We're still trying to figure that out, but, um, but maybe... Maybe one day we'll manage a sort of BBC style um, adventure film that's also looking at, at geography. Um, well, when you watch when you watch the Olympics, sometimes those kayakers and they get stuck. In, oh, it's terrifying! Uh, it's terrifying. And I, you think, I, what on earth's going on in the water there? Because oh students all think the water just flows, but actually, <laughs> yeah. not at all. I know. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, to be honest, like uh, my reaction there, sort of said it all I I can't watch things like that without sort of getting panicky and, and worrying that something's going to happen to them um but yeah there's certainly the I think that's probably one of the reasons why why Rob um really enjoys kayaking is because he he loves uh, ge uh geography and river processes and, and land processes and so being able to uh, kayak down a river and see all of that in action is 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 really really cool i think it'd be great to take students to do something like that but i don't know how you get through the red tape that would be, no, um, yes, be a bit true. terrifying <laughs> but it would put the bradshaw model into into perspective wouldn't it uh, this isn't doing what it's supposed to do on this piece of paper yeah yeah look at what's happening okay what's the future then for time for geography where where next because it's it's fantastic now but where are you going to take it so without giving away too many exciting oh, secrets. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I... Um, <laughs> no, well, to be honest, John, we have, we have covered a fraction of the curriculum. There are so many videos that we still have to make. We um, fully intend to keep making videos. Um, we want to stay up to date with new research and um, making sure that that there isn't this disparity between what academics know and what students are taught. We want to make sure that that, that gap is bridged in a way that's, um, you know, that is uh, relatable <clears throat> to, to students. So, um, and then also we want to keep inspiring students. We want to keep providing role models um, and encouraging all students um, and a diversity of of people to study geography um so there's some of our big goals for sort of the coming year is just to is just to keep doing that to 
to keep providing role models and making good videos um, and helping to support the next generation of geographers. I think there's an interesting thing you've said there about the, it is a little bit of a disconnect sometimes. What's happening at the cutting edge of, of developing new knowledge and that uncertainty there. And sometimes the teacher's requirement for wanting pretty much certainty so students don't get confused. So that when mm-hmm. they go into the exam, they write a good A-level question. And that's mm-hmm. a, I think that's a dilemma because it, mm. it's always got to be, this is the right answer. Yeah. And actually we, we don't necessarily know. So the formation mm. of Drummond still is still mm-hmm. very debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that, that link between academics and what they're doing and what you've said as well about the uncertainty of all this in the development mm-hmm. is, is really key. And that's one of the things that's, that's so good about time for geography is, is bringing that academic into the classroom, but also not using academic English, which mm. can be a barrier to a lot of students because mm-hmm. it's, it, it, sometimes it can be really dense and difficult. You have to read it five mm-hmm. times before you get the meaning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I do anyway. No, oh, so do I. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, it's something that that academics we, we when you do research and you write academic papers, scientific papers, um, or sorry, it doesn't have to be scientific, but any academic paper, you you do jargon and terminology becomes everyday to you, and you forget that 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 it's specialist. You forget that it's um, that it's it's not something that your average uh, your average layman will know let alone a 14 year old in school and so um taking distilling what is so exciting and so important about your research and being able to convey that in a way that is accessible not just based on what the students don't know but what they do know that's what you need to work on you need to take what they do know and build on that to then tell them to explain to them this new concept that you're that you're talking about and that um that is very different to how we as academics are sort of trained to write um and and trained to convey our knowledge um but it is so so important um because it that, i mean that's what science um I keep saying science it's not just science it's any sort of academic um academic um communication or communicating knowledge is about it's about finding um ways to let as many people know what's going on as possible well you carry on doing that with time for geography congratulations for all the award the awards that you've got so far because yeah. <laughs> if that website was weighed down by the amounts of awards it would be really seriously heavy because that awards page yeah. is amazing and so <laughs> i know it's great isn't it we're very carry proud. on doing that yeah it's absolutely fantastic and, yeah. and it's been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, no, thank you very much, John. I really appreciate it. I will just jump in and say Time for Geography is very much, it's made possible by all the people that we work with and all the partners, including the GA, but all the academics and our whole team of geographers and everybody that contributes. It's um, It really is a team collaborative effort um, that makes it what it is. So it's, uh, yeah, it's big thanks to everyone who's who's been involved in Time for Geography and all the people who will be involved in Time for Geography. Yeah. And uh, thanks very much to you, John. I really appreciate talking to you. It's been lovely. Thanks for listening to today's JogPod. During these challenging times, don't forget the wealth of resources available on the GA website, geography.org.uk, including our teaching resources, which are currently free to access for all. You might also want to look at our Geography from Home section 
which aims to support teachers, parents and guardians whilst children and young people are learning from home. There's also a growing selection of web enquiries, online events and quizzes all available for free on our new sister site, geographyeducationonline.org.